Okay, welcome to the next edition of the Yuppie Chef podcast. This one we're doing actually live from the Yuppie Chef staff kitchen. So you're going to hear a lot of background noise, a lot of people having meetings, making some coffee. You might hear a milk frother going or two. We're sitting here with Nick Harilambus of nickharry.com. Welcome. Thank you very much. And you got my surname right. Nice work. Thank you. I actually know someone else who called who has the same surname as you. So I've had practice for a number of years. Probably so. a cousin of mine. <laughs> very possibly. <laughs> um, so Nick, entrepreneur, media mogul, fashionista. That's what we know about you. Yeah. Give us a quick breakdown of who you are and how you got to where you are today. Sure. Okay. Um, as I'm getting older, that story is becoming longer. Yeah. Um, so, started off in Joburg where I went to school, wanted to be a war correspondent, went to Rhodes because of that wow. and studied journalism. Then did the media thing um, for a while in the interim, starting businesses throughout that process. So I think I started my first company when I was 19 at Rhodes. Um, it was a student news aggregator. Learned some important lessons about students there. Students mm. don't care about news. Um, <laughs> so that business didn't work out so well. Um, and then worked in media, 702, Sunday Times, Mail and Guardian, Financial Mail, um, did the whole media thing. Realized that the world was shifting digital and um, that journalists are broke and got out of that uh, after Mailing Guardian went and worked at Vodacom Vodacom is where I learned about mobile and my boss at Vodacom was also my boss at Mailing Guardian and was also my lecturer at Rhodes he and I left Vodacom after about two years just less than two years um, because we realized at one point that our entire two-year budget for our entire project was eight hours of revenue for Vodacom wow so we realized we weren't making a difference at that company, um, and we left, moved to Cape Town, found a venture capital firm who wanted to invest in a business idea that we had. It was the time when business uh, funding was easy to come by. Uh, this is 2010, 2009, 2010, um, where we literally raised two and a half million rand off the back of a business plan and wow. one small case study. So yeah, then in Cape Town, built MoTribe. Uh, for two and a half years, and in 2012, sold MoTribe to Mixit, um, which was kind of nice, traumatic, but nice. Um, and then, Why traumatic? Uh, selling a business is always traumatic. It's is, it very, like a, is it like a baby? Like you've, you've raised this thing and then you've got to exactly, give it away. Exactly right. I don't have kids. Um, I, my life revolves around the things that I build, and that's yeah. a very conscious choice. So when you sell a business, whether it's profitable or not, it's still really hard to give up something you've worked for mm. for two and a half years and literally 20 hours a day, seven days a week. Sure. That's what you go through. Um, and to be honest, I didn't really want to sell, but uh, it was the right thing to do at the time. And my business partners and VCs were fortunately smart enough to persuade me in that <laughs> direction. Yeah. Um, so it was a profitable exit and it was good in hindsight, but at the time it was extremely depressive. I literally was depressed for three months, wow. um, sat in my underwear, watching TV for two months. Is uh, that what made you turn to fashion? Because you're like, I can't just wear underpants the rest of my life. Pretty much. <laughs> like jokes aside, that I was sitting in my underwear with my socks on, they had holes in them and they were really crappy. And I was like, I wonder if I can make socks locally. Wow. And I could. And that's how Nick Harry was born. Um, at the time, it was Nick Socks, actually. Yes. Um, and the that's idea, how I first heard of you, was Nick yeah, Socks. Yeah. Um, the reason for the shift we'll get into at some point okay. in this, I'm sure, but let's not jump ahead. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to start that business with very specific intent. Um, it was 
at Motribe when we sold, people were kind of critical of us in a very South African way. Um, South Africans like to point out failure um, and criticize anything just for the sake of it. Mm. It's a very bad trait of entrepreneurs in South Africa is we don't like to see other people succeed and we like to point out failure. Um, so when we sold Motribe, everyone said to us, oh, it was easy for you guys, you raised venture capital. Mm. Meanwhile, the truth being that when you raise venture capital, you raise a lot of debt, you raise expectations, your sure. exit has to be bigger and faster, so there's a lot more pressure. So I wanted to start the next business on a very specific set of criteria. Um, I wanted to prove to South Africans that you don't need millions of rands to start a business. So I set out a budget of 5,000 rand, um, and I set a time frame of 30 days to build and six weeks to, uh, the other way around, six weeks to build and 30 days to become relatively sustainable. Sure. So 5,000 rand, we invested in a website, uh, which I built myself on WordPress using WooCommerce, um, which is local. they might be someone for you guys to interview. Um, and then after a month, we partnered with City Mob, uh, who's now Superbalist, and we sold six, six or 700 pairs of socks in 30 days, and the wow. 5,000 Rand became 30,000 Rand. And in our first year, we sold 6,000 pairs of socks. Um, Just keep going, man. <laughs> okay, <We'll>... cool. <laughs> it sounds like the world is crawling. Um, the beauty of so, live podcasting. Yeah. So um, in our first year, we sold 6,500 pairs of socks. In our second year, we sold 66,000 pairs. And this year, we're on track to do about 120,000 pairs globally. That's um, where we are now is we ship to 20 countries through our website, direct-to-consumer. Mm. We are in 35 stores around South Africa that we stock through retail. Um, and we've just opened our first flagship store in Cape Town. Where is that? That is uh, 66 Whale Street in CBD. Wow, yep. fantastic. Thanks. Funny enough, talking about um, WooCommerce and, and all of that kind of stuff, I actually, the first I heard of you was when you spoke at WordCamp last year. Cool. Um, I remember exactly how you opened your talk, the last talk of the day, dropping a massive F-bomb, and I remember <laughs> thinking, what is this guy on about? <laughs> you're like, that's such a cheap trick, you know? Like, oh, But funny enough, you actually the, every time. you're the only guy I remember from that whole day, yep, and that's probably why. Yeah, but, absolutely. But um, I remember... Honestly, what what you spoke about that day was about um, like your focus on customer satisfaction and customer service. I remember you telling a story about some guy had something wrong with his socks, and you drove personally to his house to deliver yep. the socks. What is it about customer service and customer satisfaction that you you feel is so important, especially in the online space? Yeah. Man, it's going to sound like I'm kissing ass when I say this. <laughs> um, so it's Yappy Chef. Honestly, Yappy Chef is the reason that I considered customer service as a thing. Yeah. Um, I I know the three Yappy Chef founders relatively well, Paul being knowing him the most. Um, and they got me thinking about customer service through my experience with the brand firstly and then through engaging with them directly. Um, and then they got me to read about Zappos yes. in the US um, and Tony Shea and the things he's done with Zappos, just phenomenal. I mean, at one point, a friend challenged him about the customer service at Zappos. They were in Vegas. And they said to him, I bet you that your customer service isn't as good as you think it is. And he was like, fine, do whatever you want to do. Phone my customer service and try. So they said, cool. They phoned the customer service and said, listen, we don't want to buy shoes, but we'd like a pizza. And the guy ended up ordering them a pizza and delivering it to their hotel room in Las Vegas. And it arrived within 30 minutes. That's insane. And that is just such another level of customer service. And that benchmark in South Africa is non-existent. Sure. So I can't we, imagine we'd actually do that for anybody. No, but, of course. Uh, and there's a limit, right? Yeah. There, there obviously is a limit. But I bet you you wouldn't say no to them in terms of, let me help you. What, you yeah, need a yeah, pizza, yeah, where yeah. are you? What place are you in? Let yeah. me direct you to a pizza joint. Yeah. You know, that sort of thing. 
Um, and having experienced Vodacom's customer service from working there, um, being a person who uses a bank account, um, <laughs> the service in this country is terrible. Yeah. So Zappos is famous for saying that they're a customer service company that happens to sell shoes, and Yappie Chef is very similar on the level mm. that they go to, and we are the same. Yeah. Um, I did very calculated things with our business. Um, the, one of the problems with the e-commerce model is that reverse logistics, which is returns, mm. returns are expensive for the brand. So we did away with them. I use returns and problems as a marketing and customer service experience. So if you have a problem with a pair of socks within seven days, I just send you free socks. Wow. I, I don't even ask questions wow. if it's a viable problem. I mean, obviously, if you don't like the color green, yeah, sorry yeah, for yeah. you. But if you have a hole, if the bamboo is worn out, which it happens, it's a soft fabric, then so be it. <clears throat> Good luck to you. Mail me, I send you free socks, and then you tell people. That yeah. level of customer service just gathers me more customers. Absolutely. And um, it always will. And that was the decision we made. It rolls over into the stores that we open. It rolls over into our retail experience with other retailers. Um, if they don't live up to my standards, I'd go and buy the stock back from them. I wow. don't deal with anything less than my level of satisfaction. That's great, yeah. That's great. Another thing I remember you uh, speaking about on that day was saying how, I just remember the phrase, you're, I'm always on. And you're yep. a big proponent of living the brand. Yeah. Like, why is that so important to you? Um, it's taken me a, a, quite a few years to realize that if you're doing something you absolutely love and believe in, you can't help but talk about it all the time and push it all the time. Yeah. Um, and obviously, there are levels of pushing. I'm not a constant salesperson. Yeah. Um, but in, in the sales world, they say, ABC, always be closing. Yeah. I genuinely am always closing. <laughs> okay. And the truth is, I only wear my socks. And the people I know only wear my socks. I give them as gifts so that they only wear my socks. Yeah. Um, in terms of the customer service always on, um, I think it's important in the world of e-commerce. It's one of the big differences between the world of retail in brick and mortar and the world of e-commerce is you are always on. The mm. fact that we ship to 20 countries around the world means that my customer service is 24-7 just about. Sure. Um, obviously, I sleep for five or six hours a night, yeah. and then I have automated emails that fire off and tell people that I'll be back to them soon. But generally, if I'm in a meeting and someone phones me about stuff, I stop the meeting, and my customers come first. Wow. That's the way it has to be. Yeah. Um, because losing one customer could mean losing five more when they tell them that I had, they had bad customer service. How big is your team out of interest? Um, we're four. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's very small for it such is, a big operation. It's very small um, and it's intentional. Yeah. I struggle with culture, um, how to verbalize it, how to bring it out, especially considering the, the brand is my name yes. and the culture is me. Um, yes. So we're trying to get to grips with how that scales um, yes. and yeah. scaling culture is probably the most important thing now that we have a sustainable business. Absolutely. Um, if I can't sustain culture and attract the right staff, which I'm going through problems at the moment, um, then the business is in real problems. Yeah, because it doesn't just reflect on the business, it's also a reflection of you as a man and yeah. you as a you know, businessman, entrepreneur, like anything you do you know, in the future, yeah. it all gets affected. Completely. And actually, that was one of the reasons that I named the business myself this time around. Yeah. Um, I have a, it's a generational thing. Um, I have a job hopping issue. Um, I've not actually been in a company or job for longer than three years. This is the longest thing I've ever done, actually. That's amazing. Um, we turn three next month, that's November amazing. 19th. Um, and that's problematic because all the vast amount of books that I've read, nothing worth building is built in three years. Yeah. Nothing. Sure. Everything worth building takes decades. And I named the business Nick Harry because I needed to tie myself into it. Um, and now I've tied myself into the brand, into the experience, into the product, into every nuance and detail around yeah. the product. If you screw it up, 
you're screwing up my brand when it gets to the customer. So do it right now because yeah. otherwise I look bad. So and it's I think more risky, but it also has a potential for bigger Completely. Reward. And it's, it's that all-in thing. Yeah. You have to be all-in. You can't have one foot in the grave and one foot in the product. Otherwise like, you won't give your best to it. Completely. And I mean, it's you see it all over. And the reason I chose the, the name was very calculated. Paul Smith, Ben Sherman, Ralph Lauren, it, yeah. they all back their brands with their name and their stamp of approval. Yeah. So we do the same. Internally, the motto is if I won't wear it, I won't sell it. Fair enough. And that's how we have to work. Yeah. That's cool. You used to write a blog called SA Rocks. Yeah. What happened to that? <laughs> um, blogs don't make money. Um, Tell me about it. That's what happened to that. <laughs> um, no, so that, that was a fun thing for the time that it happened. Um, so, sure. I've been, I realized recently that I've been blogging for almost as long as WordPress has been around. Wow. Within the first year of WordPress launching, I launched my blog Nick, on nickharalambus.com. And I've been re- writing on the same database for a decade, wow. um, which makes me feel really old. Yeah. But I have literally thousands of blog posts for the last 10 years um, and SA Rocks was part of that and part of that time um, I started it at a time when the country was feeling a little bit sad for itself and there was a lot of negative press that hasn't changed I've just chosen to stop reading the news um, yeah. but the basic premise of the blog was South Africans needed a reason to feel better about our country and all you ever hear is negativity sure. and there's a lot of brain drain talk at the time uh, over the last 10 years that's been reversed quite significantly there are a lot of uh, brain drain reversal statistics about people coming back into the country um, but I wrote every single day for almost 7 years one oh. thing one blog post that was positive a guy helping a girl across the street yeah. that sort of stuff anything um, but eventually it fizzles out because it's, it was never going to be a really big empire. And the older I got, the more I realized I needed to invest my time in things that could scale yeah, um, and things that could mean something um, on a broader level. Um, and look, the blog did well. It had forty or 50,000 uniques a month at one point. Yeah, that's um, great. But, you know, th- this is, it's also funny. People are like, oh, blogging and blogger drops. Yeah, we've been blogging for the last 10 to 12 years. So it's not new. It's not fancy. Yeah. There's just a new wave of blogging douchebaggery that comes around every five years. Like, <laughs> That's true. It's just the way it is. That's true. So, yeah, SA Rocks was just part and parcel of the story. Okay, cool. Do you still then, do you, are you still so positive about South Africa? Yeah. Um, to be perfectly frank, if I wasn't, I have a new passport, I'd leave. Fair enough. Um, so, I choose to be here every day and I have done so for 31 years. Um, it's not easy building a business in this country. We are not in the top hundred countries of, of ease to build a business. Yeah. Out of interest, Rwanda is in the top five. You can build a business from zero, no registration documents, to registered in three days. Wow. That is promoting entrepreneurship. Um, we aren't. Our legislation doesn't promote entrepreneurship. How long does it take here? Yeah, it can, geez, depends on how well your CIPRO documents or your CIPC documents get through, but it can take anywhere from zero to 30 30 days if you're lucky on yeah. a bad case three months to wow. get your super documents back then to get VAT registered will take you another two or three months um, is this not really conducive to a quick startup no, or? exactly right um, and we don't live in a world where you can take six months to yeah. do that um, but in fairness um, I've said this a lot in the last four or five years if you want to make it happen you will that sure. stuff won't get in your way sure. um, and that's why I'm still pretty gung-ho about the country because <laughs> it's less about the country and the environment and more around the people and there are entrepreneurs everywhere um, and they're going to push no matter what happens to them they're going to push sure. so it's less about the country and more about the person so if you didn't have the sock business now what, what business would you be doing what would you start 
Um, What's the next big thing? Socks weren't weren't really a thing for me. What I was trying to do was prove a model. And sure. for me, e-commerce is the thing that's coming that hasn't hit the African continent significantly yet. So if it wasn't socks, it would have been something else in the e-commerce space. For me, it just so happened that socks was a very specific trend I picked that worked out. Um, men's fashion uh, in Europe online is the fastest growing category last year. It was faster than women's fashion and electronics combined. So wow. it's not a mistake that I chose Socks for Men. It was very specific um, because I believe that South Africa is three to four years behind fashion trends um, from Europe to South sure. Africa. And we're undercated for it. There, there are no men's brands that are built in South Africa that's sustained. The only one I can think of is Hilton Weiner. Yeah. Um, and they're in financial trouble anyway. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so that, that was, that's where I would be. I would be in e-commerce anyways. There are some interesting sectors that are emerging. Um, health is a huge one. Energy is a massive one. Um, banking and finance, uh, the Bitcoin trends yes. are going to be huge here. Um, but, yeah, I think e-commerce is where I want to play. Okay, so... So knowing that we're a bit behind Europe or America or whatever, like, what opportunities or trends do you see in the next few years coming up? You don't have to give away any trade secrets if you... Uh, oh, no, you, no, no problem. Um, I, let's, let me just clarify one thing. I don't think we're behind, right? I think that there are things that we are decades ahead. Um, out of interest, mo- mobile is one of them. Did you know that prepaid was invented in South Africa? The concept of prepaid. Really? Vodacom was the first uh, operator worldwide to have a prepaid voucher. Wow. It's, it's their technology. So That's we've amazing. been having it, like to use a Vodacom phrase. Um, <laughs> we've been around and in that space, we're streaks ahead. Mobile payments. Um, Square has just announced that they're IPOing at the moment um, and that's great, but they, you need a smart device and you need a credit card to use Square. Like we've been having uh, M-Pesa on this continent for 10 years now. Mm. So we're ahead in those spaces. Um, where I think the trends are going... The big trains, logistics, um, the last mile is super important on this continent. If yeah. we can figure out how to get stuff to people cheaper and faster, it's going to speed up the oh, way absolutely. that this happens, and it's a big problem. Um, it's something that a lot of entrepreneurs in the e-commerce space completely underestimate, and it destroys their business because margins just don't support the model that they want to play in. Yeah. This is another reason why we chose a very specific product, uh, high margin low weights, easy to ship. I can ship anywhere in the world within five days yeah. um, and for under three or 400 rand. That's pretty impressive considering it's a pair of socks. Sure. Um, if I was shipping, sorry, John, if I was shipping bikes, um, <laughs> I would not be shipping internationally. John's our producer, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> I would not be shipping internationally. Um, so, yeah, I would say the last mile is pretty important, but there are so many big trends. If I had to pick one for the next 10 or 15 years, I would say the Bitcoin experience becoming mainstream, there's a huge opportunity there. Okay. I have a question for you um, ab- about sort of Africa as a, as like a marketplace. Like, do you think that your business would have worked as well if you'd started it in Europe? Or do you feel like you, ha- you know I mean, you would have been maybe one of a crowd in a, in a more packed market there? Or do you think that you kind of had an advantage actually, even though technically maybe we aren't so set up infrastructure-wise in Africa or South Africa specifically, yeah. you, you kind of had more of an opportunity to stand out? Mm. There are so many ways to answer that question. Um, the easiest one, the quickest answer, I'll, I'll indulge the longer one just now, but the quickest answer is no. I think that if I was in 
New York, I would be more successful quicker. Okay. Um, it's really simple. The Chicago, the state of Chicago, their GDP is almost the same as South Africa's entire GDP. <laughs> yeah. That scale you can't find in this country. I, yeah. can't, I can't physically, as Nick Harry, spend enough Google ad budget to reach enough people in this country. Yeah. There aren't enough people searching for socks in South Africa for me to make a reasonable business out of. Yeah. That's why we ship to 20 countries around the world. So if I was in those markets, as an entrepreneur, you have to believe that I'm good enough to beat all the competitors. Yeah. And then competitors aren't really an issue. So it's about product differentiation. Then the slightly longer answer is, in South Africa, I'm producing local products with a unique fiber, with unique designs, and that differentiates me from a global space. Happy Socks is a brand that is pervasive. They're in 6,500 retail outlets across the world in 120 countries. So they've led the way in making people know that socks are okay to be fun. Yeah. I'm the one who's going to elevate them and give them the African version of that. Cool. No one wants another sock produced in China or Turkey or Mauritius. Yeah. They want a sock that's unique, that can give them a story to tell. People back brands they don't back products yeah. so i think that if you're an entrepreneur you need to forget about what other people are doing and build the best that you can build and gary vaynerchuk the wine entrepreneur and other various things he's famous for saying just ignore your competitors and do what you can do better than what they can do sure because there is only one of you and there are many of them so what is it like about your personality or about your experience and what is it, what drives you to keep innovating like you know because you're saying that you hop you hop from place yeah. to place you finally starting to settle down now but what yeah. is it that is in you that you feel like makes you keep wanting to do something new or different I've started saying that I firmly believe that entrepreneurs are slightly broken okay like realistically I think that there is something very wrong with a lot of us and if we had to stop and not be ADHD we'd probably break down yeah. um, and and sob ourselves to sleep at night um, but Genuinely, I think that it's, it's something that we just are. Um, and it's not me specifically. It's all of the great entrepreneurs that I know, my yeah. friends, colleagues. Um, they just don't know another way. So I, I don't know how to be employed. I'm completely <laughs> unemployable. Like, it's yeah. just, I, I hate authority. I don't like other people. I don't play well with kids. Like, it's, yeah. it's not me. So I don't actually know another way to do it. Like, that's, okay. that's as simple as it is, really. Yeah, yeah. that makes sense. We're going we're gonna to transition more into now a bit more cool. into what our sort of core business is, is bringing people around, you know, around a table, food, cool. whatnot. So we want to hear more about your story. You were telling us just before we started recording, interestingly, about your actual cooking style, your girlfriend's a vegan, yeah. all of that stuff. So Yeah, and actually she's my business partner too. She's wow. a shareholder okay. in the company. We, we've been together 11 years and we work together and wow. live together and she's a vegan. So it can work, yeah? Yeah, well, I don't know. I'll tell you in five years. <laughs> <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Um, yeah, so I, I'm obviously Greek. I have a Greek heritage, so mm. food is very central to the way that I've been brought up. Um, yeah. My mom always cooked every night, um, sometimes a little bit more lazy meals. Uh, but in general, every Sunday we had a family Sunday lunch um, with our extended families, so like 20 or 30 people around a table on Sunday for lunch. Um, Christmas is always big, uh, obviously always about meats, you know, chicken and turkey. Always found it ironic that Christmas we always sacrificed other animals. Yeah. Very weird to me. Um, but... Yeah, so cooking is quite central. I've been cooking and baking for as long as I can remember um, because my mom taught me how to. Um, my aunt owns a 
chili sauce company that my grandfather started the recipe for 35 years ago. What is that? Uh, it's it's called Papu's Chili Sauce. Wow. Um, you can get it at the Neighborhoods Market in Joburg. But he he made the recipe and he's got uh, chilies that he brought from Greece and Cyprus literally 30 years ago that we've been growing for wow. 30 years. So it's the same chili, yeah. the same plant, different lineages, obviously. That's so, cool. yeah, food is a central tenant of my life. We cook six days a week, like... Yeah, we do take one day or four takeaways. <laughs> what is your so? What is your very first cooking memory? You know, you said your mom obviously was quite into her cooking oh, Sunday lunches. Like, what is the first thing that you can remember making yourself? Oh man! Um, For me, I think it was like muffins. I was like super into just making brand muffins because I was like, geez. I just found a recipe. Um, wow, that's such a good question. Um, uh, I can't actually remember quite specifically in my youth making yeah. anything I remember baking chocolate cakes with my mom yeah. like for events and birthdays and stuff like I think that was the first thing I can remember assisting making was a yeah. chocolate cake um, in terms of being a, an independent human being when yeah. I moved into digs in second third year uh, in Grahamstown that was probably the first time that we had to kind of figure out how to cook for ourselves without yeah. a parent doing it for us or telling us yeah. and for two years in, in Grahamstown it's easy to just go into the, the mess hall and get the food that they give you because yeah. you're a drunk student so it's easy like an old rat and parrot or something over there. Yeah. yeah and actually the, the recipe that we cooked the most was this one of my mom's old friends her name was Lynn so she gave us this recipe which we now call Lynn's chicken and it's literally half a bottle of chutney half a liter of coke and half a <laughs> bottle of tomato sauce to make the sauce oh and then gosh. you put the chicken in it and it makes this incredibly like sweet barbecue oh, thing and the crust just cooks in the oven it's awesome that not healthy no, don't cook that healthy, don't cook that we haven't cooked delicious. it in like a decade don't cook it but yeah, yeah that's what we used to make in digs um what is it like? What is one dish that you wish you could cook that you can't yet? Like something aspirational, like you've seen on TV or you've seen in a cookbook. You're like, man, one day. That's a tough question because I am an obsessive MasterChef viewer. Okay. Uh, like I've watched Master, every episode of MasterChef Australia. Like I know them by heart. I freaking love seen, them. Do you watch them on TV or do you do the, the pre-watch? We do the pre-watch. Okay, don't tell me. I haven't seen season seven. Oh, so, that's okay, pro- okay. That's problematic. Whoa, whoa, whoa. No, I won't say a word. Um, I'm not that guy either because yeah. I will murder people. Oh, jeez, um, as well. But MasterChef has opened my eyes to all the various possibilities of things. So one of the things I've never done that I would like to do is make pasta. I want to make my own pasta, but yeah. consistently. So yeah. I want that to be part of my life. Yeah. Um, but I never have. Yeah. Okay. So obviously, being a big fan of MasterChef, you obviously get exposed to like, hey, these are some chefs I've never seen before. Or like, wow, that guy's amazing. Like, yeah. I haven't heard of him. Because you only, you know, here we generally hear about the big names, the Gordon Ramsay's, Jamie Oliver's, yeah. the whatever's, you know. So of that, which celebrity chef do you like wish, hey, I'd just love to have a beer with that guy yeah. or like would love him to teach me something. Yeah, yeah. Anthony Bourdain. Okay. Definitely. Um, he's got a show called The Taste, which is like MasterChef, but for, for one bite. Um, it got a little bit laborious in season three, but nevertheless, um, he's got a really interesting story. And like, I don't really like hearing from douchey chefs who like are all amazing and went to brilliant schools. And I want to hear from the guys who started off as a dishwasher yeah. and made his way through and that's Anthony Bourdain um, so yeah I think hanging out with him he, he would have some things to say fair enough yeah um, so last of the food sort of related cool. stuff what um, like what is your go to meal like everybody has that like one meal like man it's been a long day I, I have to cook tonight and this is the thing I, I always cook whenever 
they always have that one up your sleeve, you know, you're like, man. Yeah, we don't. Um, so really? because, yeah, so because Jen's a vegan, we are very specific about setting out our week's meals. Um, because if you, if you have a vegan in your house and you don't plan stuff, oh, you end up eating really boring stuff. Yeah. Um, but if you do plan stuff, you will eat vegetables like you've never eaten them before. So then what's the one thing that you love to make that you'll plan a lot then? So Jen makes a really fantastic vegan lasagna. Um, so that and that's that's a little that, bit that's more. That's got to be quite difficult, though. It is, but so for us, cooking is a way to decompress. Yeah. So we we do carve out like two hours a, a night to cook and to do that sort of thing. Because if you imagine that we work together yeah. uh, from six in the morning, we're up uh, and we're work, talking about work. We get home and we do a little bit of work talk, yeah. and then we stop and we have to cook. So we've yeah. got six meals a week and on Sundays, Saturdays and Sundays we probably cook four times that we plan and very carefully do every night. So yeah, we don't really, the go-to for me is bolognese and we've kind of figured out how to get a vegan bolognese to taste almost like a real bolognese. That's yeah. pretty impressive. Fries. Fries is amazing yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. I, I've heard I, that they were vegan and they're not really themselves anymore. They just see the brand now. Oh, really? I don't know. I, mean, I would look, like I to be slandering that. Them, but, but either way, they're, they're a Durban-based company. Like, they've done yeah. so phenomenally. Um, yeah. It's amazing, yeah. I love those. Uh, they have those braai sausages. Yeah, man. amazing. I'm not even a vegan or a vegetarian. I just love the taste of those things. And realistically, they're chicken, chicken burger equivalents. Yeah. I can't tell the difference between that and chicken, which is really? scary about chicken burgers. Yeah, actually, but exactly. I don't see the reason why you'd eat a chicken burger if it tastes yeah. exactly like a vegan option. Exactly. So, yeah. Okay, my last question. Yes. The, the one we're going to end on. Cool. One of the, you know, the classic interview questions. Yeah. <laughs> what is the legacy that you hope to leave? Like, what do you want people to remember you for? Oh, man, that like, has changed so much for me over the last decade. Um, when I was 21, I wanted to be a millionaire by 25. Okay. When I was 25, that didn't happen, so I wanted to be a millionaire by 30. And when I hit 30, which was a year and a half ago, two years ago, I realized that none of that shit matters. Yeah. Um, what does matter... Um, is what I do today and how much fun I have. Okay. I don't really care about legacy that much, to be perfectly frank. Um, I don't have any interest in having children. Um, I'm going to give everything away when I die. Um, when I turn 80, I'm probably going to be a massive drug addict. Um, everyone, always, everyone always says that drugs will ruin your life. And when you're 80, they won't. So yeah. I'm like, I'm in. That's okay. what I'm going to do. It's a good um, time to start. Yeah. <laughs> but no, it, that just it speaks more towards my approach that... I don't like the idea of thinking about legacy too much. I think that if you think about what you're doing today and it's valuable today and it means something to you today, then that legacy will come. Right. I'm not like Donald Trump where I need to erect a building with my name on it so that the world remembers me for the next hundred years. Yeah, Harry Lambert's Towers would also, it's quite a lot of space you'd have to. Exactly, you'd have to wrap it it's around quite a the wide building. building. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Um, so I think that for me, legacy is more about you know doing what you do today and making sure it's important enough that you want to do it. Like I... As you can tell, I can't stop talking about the things that I do because yeah. I thoroughly enjoy them. Yeah. And I can tell you that I've met people at a braai and I say to them, what do you do? And they go, oh, no, nothing really. Um, okay. Then yeah. what do you, literally, what do you do every day? If you don't, don't want to tell me what you do for a living, why are you doing it? Yeah. That's more important to me than legacy. Well, that's fair enough. Man, thank you so much for your time. Absolutely. It's been super interesting that was fun. hearing about you. And, uh uh, hopefully this will also spark more of your interest into podcasts eh? maybe yeah we'll see <laughs> anyway <laughs> thanks so much to Nick Harrellamas of NickHarry.com and Nick Socks and a million other things that he's done Motribe all these things you don't necessarily a part of but your legacy still exists nice. in Thank those you. things um, for the rest of you guys if you want to get more of this if you want to hear more of our podcasts uh, you can find them on SoundCloud and you can find us at Foodie Cheshire and uh, you can also find us on iTunes on your mobile thanks very much see you next time